When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, in a sense, this this novel, you know, a near future um, sci-fi thriller is very similar to the sort of uh, books that Michael Crichton used to write. But Michael Crichton very often had science as the bad guy, science destroying the world, whereas for me, it's science saves the world. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Theoretical physicist and science communicator Professor Jim Al-Khalili has taken a break from writing popular science books to write his first novel. Sunfall is a science fiction thriller set in the year 2041, when the Earth's magnetic field has started to die, leaving life on Earth vulnerable to threats from space. Scientists and engineers are thrown into a race against time to protect the Earth. All the science in the novel, from the futuristic technology to the apocalyptic event, are based on real science, as we understand it now. In this episode, Jim explains how the Earth's magnetic field protects us, how being a scientist helped him inform his writing, and why fiction can be a frontier for science communication. Here he is talking to BBC Science Focus online assistant, Sarah Rigby. First of all, can you please tell us a bit about what your book is about? It's a sci-fi thriller. Uh, So I think it seems that a lot of science fiction around now, whether in books or TV or cinema, tends to be sort of fantasy sci-fi. Um, so, you know, wh- wh- whether it's superpowers or sort of, uh, post-apocalyptic world full of zombies or vampires or, or some world far, far away. Um, th- this is very much in the, sort of the vein of, uh, the sort of Philip K. Dick, you know, sort of near, near future techno thrillers, hard sci-fi, the sort of stuff that Hollywood does very well, but which really ha- I haven't seen so much in books, not since the likes of Michael Crichton. Uh, so uh, it's it's meant to be a page turner, uh, which I, I hope people will will find, you know, sort of the, the, the thrill of the storytelling, but also painting a picture of a world set in the near future, 20 odd years from now. Okay, so the idea of your book is a... Um apocalyptic type event so could you just explain the event please yes i mean it's uh in in a sense sort of all these the, the the possible scenarios for potential apocalypse and end of the world has been done um i wanted to find a new angle 
so the basic premise is based on something which, to some extent, we know is happening. You know, the Earth has a magnetic field, and that magnetic field flips over a few times every million years, uh, and we're overdue a flip. So the magnetic north becomes the magnetic south. Compasses will, will, will point to the opposite direction when that flip happens. And we've, we know it happens just throughout the geological records. We know it, it's, ha, ha, it's happened over history. Uh, the sun has a magnetic field, but that flips much more frequently, just every, every decade or so. Um, so the basic idea is that the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker, and people think it's because it's getting ready for a flip. Uh, but, you know, what I don't think this is a, a particular spoiler to say that, in fact, what's happening, which the authorities are trying to hide from uh, the world, is that the magnetic field is dying. Uh, and the apocalyptic scenario here is not just that compasses won't work. Uh, Earth could then, if that happens, Earth would very well go the way that Mars went. We believe that Mars had a magnetic field and an atmosphere billions of years ago, but for reasons no one understands, Mars' magnetic field died. And when that happens, it's open to space. The, the um, uh, uh, cosmic rays, um, uh, rays and radiation from the sun would strip away the atmosphere. Uh, and that's why Mars is now a dead planet. So the, the, the horror here is that Earth is going in the same way. Without a magnetic field to, to provide the shielding, the bubble wrap around the Earth, uh, there's nothing to stop uh, the solar wind, solar radiation uh, from bombarding the atmosphere and destroying it. And of course, then destroying all life. So the race is to try and do something about re, you know, kickstarting the Earth's magnetic field again. What is it exactly that the uh, Earth's magnetic field protects us from? Um, well, it's because it's magnetic. Uh, magnetic field it deflects charged particles. So we know that streaming through space in every direction are, are you know, it's just the the sort of the uh, uh, cosmic rays coming from outer space. But more directly, there's the what's called the solar wind radiation from the sun. Um, which is streaming towards towards the Earth, and you know that's why we see the auroras, the aurora borealis. That is these charged particles ionizing atoms in the upper atmosphere, and those atoms then, when you know they they they're given energy, they release that energy in the form of light, which is the colourful displays we see near near the poles, um, the aurora borealis and aurora australis in the, the south, southern hemisphere. Um, so that's evidence that these energetic charged particles, electrons, protons, are constantly bombarding our, our atmosphere. But thanks to the magnetic field, they are deflected away. Um, and even more dramatically, when the sun burps out uh, a, a bubble of plasma, what's called a coronal mass ejection, um, Chances are that's going to head off somewhere not towards the Earth. But every now and again, it can head towards the Earth. And again, thanks to our magnetic field, we are able to protect ourselves from it. The Earth's magnetic field will, will, will create what's called geostorms, uh, um, charged particles moving around the atmosphere. The magnetic field changes its shape. But on the whole, it keeps us protected. Without it, these charged particles from the sun 
would fly in and directly hit the earth. They will, it's, it's dangerous radiation, it can destroy life uh, and you know, change the climate. And of course, just, you know, um, strip away the earth's atmosphere. What exactly causes a coronal mass ejection from the sun? The, the sun is a very, uh, like all stars, it's very active. Uh, it's uh, uh, has lots of, because of its magnetic field uh, and charged particles, there's, there's, there's a constant turmoil of, of, of processes going on in the sun. And every now and again, it, it's, it's, it's just, it's bubbling, you know, the, the gas that the sun is made of is bubbling away. And every now and again, there'll be a release of energy. Um, the, 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 uh, the physics involved um, is, is complicated and uh, is being modeled. So people like um, Lucy Green at UCL is an expert on coronal mass ejections. And, and, and she talks about how the magnetic field locally in different regions of the sun can sort of change shape and throw these bubbles of, of plasma out into space. Um, and in fact, one of the characters in the book, uh, Sarah, is very much based on Lucy Green. Uh, and and uh, I, every time I bump into Lucy and she she's seen the book, I tell her, look, don't if you know if Sarah does anything in the book, don't it's, that's not you. <laughs> she, she's the character is based on you. The expertise she has is based on you, but not any other personality traits. <laughs> so so yes, the so coronal mass ejections is a very important field of study. Why and how the sun throws these out. But it's a very complex process. And, you know, we can't predict, for example, when the next one's coming or in what direction the next one will come. Uh, that, that's what, uh, you know, we have satellites going around the sun trying to sort of study its weather, solar, solar weather, <laughs> uh, to try and, and predict when, when these things might happen. So do you think there will ever come a point when we can predict these events or is it just that we'll simply never be able to know? It, it's it's very I mean space weather is very similar to to Earth weather um, that um, uh, we can get better we can develop more and more sophisticated um, computer models uh, that have more and more detail finer and finer um, uh, graining you know to to to, to, to uh, include more and more data um, so we can get more reliable. Uh, how far in the future we can predict certain things will happen um, just depends on the, the power of our models. You know, we can now say for Earth weather with some confidence if it's going to rain tomorrow in one part of the world. But we're never realistically going to be able to say for sure whether it's going to rain on this date next year. Uh, you know, so going into the future, it's, it's based on, of course, what's called the butterfly effect, you know, chaos theory, that you would have to know the conditions to infinite accuracy now in order to reliably predict into you know, indefinitely into the future. And solar weather, um, space weather is no difference. You know, we, we, can, we can have observation satellites, we can develop more and more sophisticated models, we can learn about the, the physical processes, but there, there, there's a limit to, to how much we, we can actually know for sure and, and make reliable predictions. We'll get better. That's all I can say. So if one of these did hit Earth and we weren't protected by our magnetic field, um, as you said, it would um, it, it could destroy life. But how would mm. it how would it do that? Would it be like an instant wipeout or would it be just, you know, slowly over time dying out? 
Well, the if there was no magnetic field, um, the uh, the charged particles uh, from from the sun and the coronal mass ejection have have so much energy that they would create very very severe radiation damage. You know, to there's there's the long term effect of mutations that they would cause. You know, so high high levels of cancer, but um, in the path of this radiation without protection, you, you will be fatally exposed to very, very high levels of, of radiation that would cause damage that would, you know, you'd, you, I mean, it depends on the level of radiation, but you, you it would kill you, not instantly, but, uh, but pretty quickly, you know, radiation sickness, you know, probably within hours or days, you'd be dead. So, um, it, it really is quite serious that uh, that we're without our magnetic field protecting us, uh, there's no way life could evolve on Earth. Even with all of our technology now, is there no way we could protect the Earth without our magnetic field? Well, that's what I speculate in the book. The, the you know that whether you know one one of the scenarios is that world governments are thinking about creating. Um, a, a, a an artificial magnetic field, sending out magnetic pulses that are so powerful that they can meet an incoming coronal mass ejection and uh, and deflect it enough so that it, it avoids the Earth. Um, but you know, as as the character in, in the book Sarah says, it's it's a bit like holding a, a cocktail stick umbrella over your head to try and protect yourself from from a storm uh, it's uh, it would require such a powerful magnetic field that I don't think that would be particularly useful you know we, we just we are just grateful that we have a, 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 a magnetosphere that protects us could you please just explain what dark matter is dark matter was postulated many decades ago uh, because it was discovered that the way clusters of galaxies move uh, together, the way stars move around within galaxies, couldn't be explained just by the gravitational forces of the normal visible matter we see. It was it was uh, realised that there must be something else with a gravitational effect that's causing the matter that we do see behave in this strange way. So it was called dark matter for want of another name, simply because it was made of stuff, but that was invisible to us. And the reason it's invisible is because it doesn't interact via the electromagnetic force, uh, which is the, the the force that holds atoms together, for example, and electromagnetism is, is, the, uh, is carried by light. So anything that interacts with the electromagnetic force, we will see it because light is entering our eyes. Um, that light that has been emitted by it, for example. But dark matter doesn't interact with light, with electromagnetism, uh, and so we don't see it, but we know it's there indirectly through its gravitational pull. And of course, since those early suggestions, there's been more and more evidence that dark matter really has to exist in order to describe our universe. For example, it's now pretty much established that without dark matter, galaxies couldn't have formed in the first place in the early universe just after the Big Bang. Um, we needed dark matter, of which there is much more of than normal matter, five times as much. We needed dark matter to clump together gravitationally. And when enough dark matter had clumped together, it could then draw in the normal matter, uh, the gas, hydrogen and, and, and helium gas. 
And once normal matter clumps together, it can condense into stars and, and, and galaxies are born and, and stars can then have planets and so on. So without dark matter, we can't explain the universe as it is. And, and there isn't another way of explaining as it is. Because people say, oh, well, maybe you're just, dark, you're just not being imaginative enough. Maybe um, there's no such thing as dark matter and we'll find a simpler explanation. Well, possibly, but I'm not aware of any other explanation that can fit with all the observations we see that does a better job than dark matter. If only we knew what it, it was made of, because it's not made of any of the particles we know of today that have been discovered thus far. It must be made of some exotic new type of particle that, uh, that only interacts via the gravitational force. So in the book, they, um, they, they tackle this issue by using dark matter, but obviously we don't currently know what dark matter is and this book is only set 25 years in the future so do you think it's do you think it's likely that we will know about dark matter by then yes i think it is i mean i I think uh, uh despite not being able to find out yet what dark matter is made of we're trying lots of different uh uh ways of probing its its properties you know we either uh, looking out into space and seeing how dark matter behaves. We're building detectors on Earth and um, protected underground to capture particles of dark matter. Or we're making new particles in, in places like Large Hadron Collider in the hope that we will discover, you know, just with the, the energy from a, um, a particle collision in the LHC, we will create new particles one of which, one or more of which might be what makes up dark matter. But so far we've come up empty-handed. But I think we're so confident that dark matter is real and exists and is out there that uh, we feel we will at some point find out for sure what, what, what it's made of. So I've speculated that it is made up of one of the candid- possible potential candidates that dark matter could be, these, these um, particles called supersymmetric particles, neutralinos, they are theoretically possible. They are postulated as one of the candidate particles. Um, and, you know, m- maybe in reality, 10 years from now, they will be ruled out or maybe even be discovered to be correct. I, I was quite keen for this book to come out either before neutralinos get ruled out or, <laughs> interesting enough, whether they're actually confirmed as the dark matter particles, because then I wouldn't seem so so prescient and clever. But but I but in writing the book over the you know I mean over the last three years that I've been I've been working on it, I've been constantly checking with colleagues who work in dark matter physics to make sure that all the information I talk about in in the book about dark matter is in fact feasible. Uh, probably the only thing that I have um, exa- over exaggerated is the dark matter self-interacting. Uh, you know, the, 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 to, you know the, the idea if we do know what dark matter is made of, potentially we could make beams of dark matter, you know, by the, you know, two decades from now in accelerators. But when you get two beams of dark matter hitting each other, you know, they don't interact with normal matter, we know that. But, uh, and, and dark matter does interact weakly with itself. Probably not to the extent to create so much energy as I describe in the book, but we, we don't know. You know, we still, if we don't know what dark matter is made of, we don't know how how uh, intense these beams might be if we were ever to, able to make them. So it is possible that dark matter could self-annihilate and create all this energy that we need to, 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 to fit in the story. 
Did you find that there were any times when you were having to prioritise scientific accuracy when you would have preferred, for example, to um, change the narrative or take the narrative in a different direction? Actually, no. I mean, I, I, because my, you know, I have a lot of experience of writing nonfiction and popularising science, you know, my whole career has been about making sure the science that I explain is correct. And so that was probably the most, one of the most enjoyable aspects of writing this novel, the challenge of getting the science right. If I wanted to explain a particular uh, uh, narrative or a particular scene or, or, or a piece of the plot, uh, I would work hard to find the science, the, 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 the science that I, that I trust that would make that possible. Um, one or two places I had to sort of slightly stretch things a bit, but, um, all the while I didn't, I haven't broken any laws of physics. I mean, I think that's, that, that was the challenge. That's what I enjoyed the most. I think I, I often think of the, um, the film Interstellar, which, uh, many people might you know, say, well, it's just, you know, a load of nonsense science fiction's made up. But of course, one of the screenwriters was Kip Thorne, who's the Nobel prize winner in physics. Uh, and, and he has assured me that everything in that book, uh, in, in that film, uh, rather, is, is accurate scientifically. It is possible. It may be speculative, but it's possible. So that was the aim with this book. Uh, there, there's none of, none, none of the science here could be ruled out. Some people say, well, that's just silly. That can't happen because such and such. It, some of it may not end up being the way things are, but it's based on the science we know today. And a lot of the technology that I describe, so, you know, painting the picture of the world in 2041 is based on science that is known today and therefore it's technology that could be possible in in the future and and that was that was a challenge for me then i think i think i've i can hold my head up high and say i don't i don't feel embarrassed about any other science in the story so why did you choose um to write a fiction book um and do you think that it it opens up any possibilities for science communication that traditional non-fiction formats don't I think it does. I mean, there's, there's, there, there are, there aren't many crossovers that are science fiction uh, based on science fact. There is a few now uh, that you know of authors who are trying to write sort of historical fiction or speculative, you know, fiction based on speculative science. And, and trying to to work hard to make sure that it's it's, it's correct. I, uh, I mean, I, I, ev- everyone I think feels that they have a, a story, a novel in them. Oh, you know, one day I'll write my novel. You know, but normally it's meant as a joke. You know, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where um, I have a public profile. I've written nonfiction books, and so this really came about by accident. You know, when, when I uh, one of my books. Uh, uh, Life on the Edge on Quantum Biology, which I co-wrote with a colleague here at Surrey, um, John Joe McFadden. When that came out in 2015, the launch party uh, for that book was attended by various people from my, our publishers. Uh, and one of them said to me, so what's what's your next book? You know, we're quite keen to keep you on as one of our authors. What are you going to pr- produce for us next? And I said, I don't know. I've sort of got everything off my chest that I wanted to talk about. You know, I've talked about quantum mechanics and relativity theory and cosmology and black holes and so on. I don't know, maybe I'll write a, a novel. 
uh, half joking, in fact. And, and but they picked up on that. Oh, really? All oh, right. Well, maybe you should think about this. You know, we'll get you in touch with our science fiction. Said, would it, what would it be? I said, well, I guess science fiction. One writes about one what one knows. Um, and um, so they uh, they put me in touch with the science fiction commissioning editor. And 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 from there on, I thought, yep, I re- this this is my next challenge. Of course, I knew I could write, and they knew I could write, but none of us knew whether I could write fiction, which turned out to be quite a different skill and, and a steep learning curve for me. So. <laughs> so what's different about writing fiction from nonfiction? Well, firstly, it's, it's, it's a, you know, as with all fiction, it's an imaginary world. It's the world that I, of my creation. Uh, and so when I, in an early draft, I had one of my characters... I, I was very pleased with this. It was a twist in the plot. One of the characters gets killed off. And uh, my editor said, no, don't kill off that character. That, that, that's one of the most powerful characters. You, know, you, should, you should leave them to live. I said, yeah, but the, but the storyline is that they, they're, they're killed. And, the, and they, the, the, my editor said, no, Jim, you are, this is your world. You are God here. You can do what you want. You can give people you know, life or death. It's entirely up to you. So there's that freedom to, 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 to explore that, of course, one doesn't have when writing nonfiction that I found very refreshing. But it was a very different way of thinking. You know, I couldn't, you know, f- finish uh, a meeting or a, 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 a lecture or, or uh, do some research and say, oh, I've got a couple of hours free now. I'll get back to my novel. No, I, I had to sort of block off weeks in advance, you know, so, OK, Thursday after next, Thursday and Friday, I've got nothing in the diary, block them off writing days. And I would shut myself away and I would have to flick a switch in my head and, 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 and think in a different way uh, in order to get into this different kind of creativity. You know, we, we scientists, we often say, you know, scientific research is creative and that is very true. But this is a different sort of creativity. Um, painting a picture of an imagined world in my head and sharing that world with with a, with a reader is is rather different from trying to explain the real world as it is. Uh, and, and, and I found that challenge difficult but very enjoyable to the extent that writing this novel hasn't put me off the possibility of writing another, <laughs> but I want to I want to see how this one goes down. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll go down great. Um, so how did you go about creating a realistic future? Well, one, one of the, um, the things I have in, uh, in my uh, armory to my advantage is that I have over the years spoken to so many scientists from so many areas. Of course, I've, this is in my eighth year of presenting The Life Scientific on Radio 4. I've now interviewed nearly 200 of the world's greatest scientists from all areas, from everything, you know, from cosmology to to epidemiology to, to volcanology, you know, to, to the social sciences and psychology and so on. So a lot of the ideas that are at the, at the cutting edge of science today, I've been able to use and extrapolate and say, well, given what we know now, how is this going to manifest itself in the future? What will the future world look like? So I'm not basing it just on fantastical speculation. I'm actually basing it on what is likely to be the world in 2041. You know, AI, artificial intelligence, for example, I have a good idea of how that will progress. 
um, things like augmented reality, uh, the the the, uh, the way with various technologies like quantum technologies and and um, smart materials and nanotech, all those ideas are fermenting and are part of scientific research today. I'm just suggesting that they will have been quite well established in the future. So, um, and I think I'm lucky in that respect. There aren't many probably scientists or authors who have this sort of access that I've had to the biggest ideas in science today. So do you think that being a scientist helped you with that? It certainly helps me uh, appreciate how, yes, but knowing how science works and knowing how research develops and, and what can lead to sort of technologies that become part of everyday life. Yes, that's certainly something that being be, being a scientist helps with, but also with the storytelling. You know, as with any um, author uh, of of fiction, you you write about the world that you know, uh, and so writing a science fiction thriller in which the main lead protagonists are themselves scientists, I I borrowed from my own experience. Many of the the characters in the book are based on real people that, are, that I've worked with, real scientists. And so their lives, their, their hopes, their fears, their desires, their motivation for doing certain things comes from an experience of knowing what it's like to do science, what it's like to be a scientist. You know, So a lot of when I'm talking about some of the main, the, the main characters, when they're developing their, um, their projects with the dark matter and, 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 and how they persuade other people that this would work, that is as realistic as, as one gets with, with the research science, research physics in particular, because that's the world I know. One thing I, uh, I liked about this book was that it felt like a, a celebration of scientists, whereas a lot of, um, a, a lot of science fiction would have their lead character as a sort of action hero. Mm. Whereas in, in this case, um, you know, we're saving the world not with you know one guy going in there and beating up all the bad guys, but it's um, it, it's how it, it probably is going to happen in a few decades' time, which is a, a huge collaboration of scientists and engineers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know, in in a sense, this this novel, you know, a near future um, sci fi thriller, is very similar to the sort of books that Michael Crichton used to write. Uh, but Michael Crichton very often had science as the, the, the bad guy, science destroying the world, whereas for me it's science saves the world. Um, yes, I didn't want it to be sort of a complete sort of out-and-out action thriller. Uh, uh, it, what I wanted to portray is that the, the cleverness of, of the scientists, their, their ingenuity, uh, was in itself the cool thing. Uh, yes, you know they they show moments of of, of bravery, you know, in, in under adversity, and I'm particularly proud of the the female characters in the book, Sarah and Shireen, you know, who 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 really are, you know, they they are the the, the real powerful characters, um, but but a lot of their power doesn't come from you know the action hero sort of heroics, but rather you know, a sense of a sense of justice, a sense of understanding the laws of nature, but wanting to put it to good use to, for, for help to help humanity. So, yeah, I'd like to think that although these are fictitious characters, they can still be good, 
role models, particularly for, for, for younger people thinking about science as a career. So what is your, what, what's your favourite science fiction that sort of influenced your thinking on this book? Um, well, I, I mean, as, as a teenager, I read a lot of science fiction, you know, the, the classics, sort of uh, Arthur C. Clarke, um, Robert Heinlein, uh, Isaac Asimov. Uh, and I enjoyed those those sort of Arthur C. Clarke in particular, two thousand one Space Odyssey, you know, books like that. Um, I also enjoyed reading Stephen King, uh, which isn't really science fiction, but it's a thriller. So I, I've, I've been very much influenced in terms of writing a thriller, a page turner. You know, coming to the end of a chapter and leaving it, you know, as a cliffhanger. That's very much, you know, the influence of of writers like Stephen King that I grew up with. But but in terms of this near future hard sci-fi techno thriller, then I guess it's 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 writers like Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, who wrote um, Blade Runner. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's that imagining a world not too far in the future and trying to predict what it will look like uh, that actually Hollywood does very well. You know, Hollywood movies the sorts of things that, you know, you know, like Blade Runner or the sorts of films with Tom Cruise in, you know, or, or Damon, you know, that, 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 are, that are set a little bit in the future uh, that, that take a particular bit of science and push it a bit further. Uh, uh, and, but I think in, in, in books, in science fiction, there don't seem to be that many that are those sorts of books around now. So I'm hoping that this is is not really going to be competing in a very crowded market. You know, there are no teenagers with superpowers. There, there are no zombies. There are no vampires. Um, it's, it's, it's just real science that, that is uh, accurate. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't write a, um, a thriller that people want to sort of keep turning the pages. Could you uh, recommend any books or films in particular that sci-fi books or films that you think do the science particularly well? Um, well, I, I, I mentioned um, Interstellar, uh, which is very good. I mean, of course, Interstellar is based, it's, that's rather more fantastical in the sense that, you know, it suggests that, you know, wormholes can exist and, and we're going to be able to travel to supermassive black hole. Um, and another book in a very similar, uh, um, a film very similar vein is, is um, Contact, uh, starring Jodie Foster. Uh, also, and Matthew McConaughey, who's who's in, and uh, the the link between Contact and Interstellar is interesting because not only is Matthew McConaughey in both films, but both films were were very strongly influenced by Kip Thorne, because Kip Thorne helped Carl Sagan, the the astro- famous astrophysicist, write the original novel Contact, you know, a decade before it became a film. Um, so yes, yeah, so so I, I I I like that for that reason, you know. Again, Contact is a good one, and and of course a, a more recent science fiction uh, movie is Arrival, uh, where, we know, again, we make contact with alien civilizations, but they're nothing like the humanoid aliens that, you know, the little green men that, that Hollywood has been obsessed with. It's, it's much more a, you know, realistic a scenario. You know, and then, of course, there are the classic films like uh, um, 2001 Space Odyssey. I also enjoy films like, you know, Gravity was wonderful. Um, Hollywood seems to be working harder at getting the science right now, uh, which is which is very nice. It doesn't. That's not to say it doesn't make awful science fiction films as well. Sometimes, but I I'm not one of those people that gets hung up 
over the bad science and science fiction. You know, it's fiction after all, and that's you know, I don't I don't watch the latest Marvel movie, which I you know I I enjoy Marvels ever since I was a kid. I grew up with Marvel comics, but I don't watch you know Spider Man and think, hang on a minute, he's just broken the laws of physics. That's impossible. I want my back. You know, it's it's fiction, uh, but I think there's room for the fantasy fiction as well as some of the more careful, clever science fiction movies and i think there have been quite a few in recent years okay um and just one last question um what do you hope your readers get out of reading your book first and foremost i want them to say i couldn't put it down you know i i loved just the thrill of the storytelling and the action because that's all that's that has been the challenge for me you know i i know the science you know and i can i can write popular science but this was a new departure for me trying to to to, to weave a narrative to tell a story about a world that i created that other people want to you know feel excited by um but also i think in you know with my science communicators hat on I'd like to think that I think, as you mentioned at the start, it's it's a, another potential way of exciting people about the possibilities of science. That science isn't something, and and new technologies that are coming are not things that we should be afraid of. You know, when you think about genetic engineering or, or artificial intelligence and robotics, a lot of people are nervous. You know, what what sort of world is that going to lead to? Uh, you know, but it doesn't have to be the Terminator. It doesn't have to be Skynet. Uh, so what I'd like readers to come away with is that science is can also be used as a force for good, that it can solve the world's problems rather than creating new ones. Uh, so it's painting a positive picture about science as well as being you know, good fun to read. That was Professor Jim Al-Khalili talking about Sunfall, his new science fiction novel. In the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, we ask, what if the Big Bang wasn't really the beginning? Speak to Sir David Attenborough about his new TV show and explore how robots are being used to reveal how ancient animals moved. As always, there is much, much more inside. And please don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. <laughs>